Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Continue our study on prayer. God wants to hear. <clears throat> you ever had that experience where you're on a road trip and you're not necessarily paying attention to what you're doing and as you're driving along, you're humming away and all of a sudden the, the gas, the low fuel light dings or you realize your gauge is really low and uh, you have no idea where you are or where the next exit is and if you'll make it and you have these moments of panic and I remember one in particular that I think everyone in the car was sleeping but me and that happened and I prayed so hard like Lord please <laughs> we do not need to run out of gas here this is not my idea of your providential goodness like let's figure this out please but you know that experience and you have you know one more hill to climb before the the exit and where you can fill up and, and get back on the road. And uh, honestly, I feel a little bit like that, like I'm between exits and uh, the gas light is on <laughs> and I'm running on empty and I'm not sure I'm going to make it. So, and I say that because, you know, if, if I get halfway through the sermon and like I'm empty, you just wave me down and tell me to pull off and wait for the tow truck. All right. So if it, if it stops making sense about halfway through, uh, you'll you'll know why. I don't say that, obviously, to evoke your sympathy. I know some of you, that's all you'll hear, and you'll feel bad for me, and you'll send me a note tomorrow and, and tell me I'm too busy or whatever. That's not the point. The point is, and I'm sure the exhaustion in the moment for me is mostly my fault. I'm pretty convinced of that, actually. I say that as a personal testimony uh, to convince you of the truth of Ephesians 1, because what I'm going to lay before you tonight is an experience of God's power at work in my weakness over and over and over again. And I obviously have a lot of opportunities for my weakness to be overcome and to be a proving ground for God's strength. And so I feel that every time I preach, I have especially felt that this last week, uh, very, very weak before the Lord, unable to do what God would ask me to do and uh, yet committed to do it and asking him for help. And I have found God to be full of immeasurably great power every time he has met me in my inability and proven that I am not the solution. I'm the problem, but I am not the solution. That he is the solution and he is sufficient to help. So I, I don't know what you're, what you're dealing with, I don't know uh, if you're running on empty, as I feel though I am, and you're looking for the next gas station or rest stop to pull off and, and uh, fuel up. I don't know what burdens the Lord's asking to carry that are impossible to you. And uh, if one more layer gets put on you, one more straw, as it were, is going to get put on your back, it's going to break you. Uh, I, I don't know what that is, but I know the God who is filled with immeasurably great power and, and who in his mercy meets us in our neediness and lavishes his merciful displays of power after power after power and makes us know his greatness. He sustains us and he helps us in our weakness. He delights to come to us in our moments of greatest need and our uh, times of least strength and display to us that he is the God who has immeasurably great power. 
That's where we come to in Ephesians 1. I thought this is a, a fitting text to come to after our study in, first, in John uh, and considering especially the resurrection of Jesus. And I wanted to, to link our study this morning with a text that had something to do with prayer and the resurrection, and there are a few of those. There's not a ton of them. Could have gone to Hebrews 13, but I preached on that recently a couple of Easter's ago, so I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I came here to Ephesians 1, and last week we considered Jonah 2, which also connects obviously to the resurrection, as Jonah is foreshadowing Christ. Uh, tonight we see in Paul and in his prayer report how he prays for the church in Ephesus, a particular link to the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, namely the resurrection of Jesus as a display of the immeasurably great power of God. In verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians, you remember he explodes into praise. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly places with the eternal riches found only in Christ, choosing us in love in him before the foundation of the world. And he just goes on and on, piling one expression after another of how good God has been to make us his own. It's a, a triune expression of praise, starting with the Father, moving to the Son, and ending with the Spirit, all at work to redeem us and to make us God's own. And it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. You kind of track that, that explosion of praise through with that phrase, to the praise of His glorious grace. It finishes one section of praise to the Father, begins the next section of praise to the Son, finishes the section of praise to the Son, and then finishes again the section of praise to the Spirit. So in light of believers who Paul has said have everything, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How should we pray for people who have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? What do you pray about? They've got it all in Christ. So what do I need to pray for? Well, that's the question Paul answers as he then tells us how he prays for us, for the church in Ephesus, and then for all believers in verses 15 to 23. And so in light of that, how should we then Pray. Well, let's read Paul's prayer and consider it together. Verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, which helps us know how we should communicate to you. Thank you for these examples and teaching on, on how to pray of things that matter to you. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us from this text and Fill us with your spirit that we might be filled with, with more confidence and more conviction and more commitment 
to pray without ceasing about these things that you've entrusted into our lives. Thank you, Father, for your work in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. So how is it that Paul is praying for them? Well, he's praying with unending thanksgiving, he says at the beginning, because he's heard of their ongoing faith in the Lord and their love for all of the saints. And then he, he, after that thanksgiving, prays for them that they would know God better, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Typical Pauline fashion, right? Keep one phrase after another, all filled with a, a world of meaning to teach us how we should think and how we should pray. Well, essentially, what he's praying for is an extra measure of the Spirit's work in the life of these believers. He's not praying that God would send the Spirit to the church in Ephesus as though He isn't there yet. He's praying that God would give them an extra measure, a, a unique work of the Spirit, to, in wisdom and revelation, bring them along in their knowledge of God, to open the eyes of their hearts so they can understand God better. And he's convinced if that can happen, then, then they can serve God better and love God better and be more faithful to God. So that's how he prays. That corresponds pretty well with our text from this morning, doesn't it? Because Jesus breathed out on his apostles in the upper room and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. As we considered that, we, we saw it was before the day of Pentecost, a, a measure of the Spirit which gave them understanding, right? Help them understand who Christ was and, and all that he had done. This is kind of a, a post-day of Pentecost way to pray in the same vein. That the Spirit of God would work in a unique way, in a, a new measured way, to bless the church with a knowledge of God. That they would know God more. And Paul's praying this way because the knowledge of God, a right knowledge of God, will give us a right knowledge of everything else. If we know God rightly and truly, and the, the better we know Him, the better we understand and know all things. And that, you know, is the precise opposite of what the world is telling us. The world is telling us that to know how all things work together, then we really need to know ourselves. And in knowing ourselves, then we'll understand how everything else fits together. And that, I mean, so much of the, the world of psychiatry is driven by that idea that you have to know yourself before you can fix yourself. Well, God's idea is that we know Him and then know all things in line with who He is. We're told not just to know ourselves, but also to love ourselves enough to listen to ourselves and to get to know ourselves better, and then everything else in life will fall into place. That's what humanity, though, has always thought, right? That's what the atheist is described as in the book of, of Psalms, that they say in their heart, there is no God. And essentially they're saying, I don't need to know God, there isn't one. I just need to know myself and, and my world and I'll figure it out. The agnostic has essentially said that they don't know if there is a God and if he does exist, he can't be known. So they kind of end up in the same spot as the atheist, right? There's no point in trying to know this God because we're not sure he's even existing. So it ends in the same spot of just know yourself. But the Christian believes what the Bible says, that God is real and that God has revealed himself and that God wants to be known. And that really things are only truly understood as we grow in our knowledge of God. Obviously not just a factual, head-based knowledge of the facts about God, but a, a relational, comprehensive understanding of him in every aspect of our lives and our existence. 
And so Paul knew that the believers in Ephesus would be given this knowledge of God only by a work of God. And so he prays for the Spirit of God to grow them in this, to move them along, to increase their understanding. He knew that they would thrive in their faith if that happened, if they knew God better. This also correlates well with what we learned this morning from John 20, doesn't it? When Mary and the disciples were lost in their chaos and confusion and grief and fear, it was driven by ignorance. But as soon as they saw the resurrected Christ and and He imparted to them understanding, He opened their minds to understand, then everything fell into place, right? The grief ended and the fear was gone. And these, these cowardly men, unknown men from Galilee, became bold standard bearers of the Gospel who turned the world upside down. Well, everything got put in its right place when they understood God, when their eyes of their heart were opened to know Christ truly and rightly. So Paul prays for that, prays that for the church in Ephesus. And he specifically wants them to know God in three areas. So in verse 18, he longs for them to know the hope to which God has called them. This is the, the settled confidence in God's work that we are sure he's made us his own. And having made us his own, he'll, he'll complete that work. It's a, a past reality that guarantees a, a future assurance and eternity, the hope to which God has called us in the past. And also in verse 18, he prays that they might know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, that that they would come to understand a little bit more of the, the vast wealth of a God who would choose a people for himself and make them his inheritance, calling them unto himself and and making them his own. And the riches then that are lavished on those who are his inheritance. So we would know that as well. And then Paul's last request is that we would know the the power of God, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward those who believe. And that's what has captured my attention as I think about prayer. As we think about the, the glorious power of God, it impacts greatly how we pray to this God of great power. And I'll try to flesh that out for you as we continue on through the text. This power is most expressly evidenced by Paul's own confession here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's in the raising of Jesus from the grave that this immeasurably great power of God is most expressly known and seen by us. And so he's praying that The Spirit of God would help them see and understand and know the great power of God as made known explicitly in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, before we go deeper on that topic, just think about how Paul has has prayed and asked for God to grow them in knowledge of past, future, and present realities. Truths that, that impact their past, which also then impacts their future, the hope of their calling. And then their future, that that they're the inheritance of God. So there's a a guaranteed eternal inheritance and and future for them in Christ. And then the present is the one I want to drill down on, which is the power of God, which is at work presently toward you who are believers. These are are present verbs. this, This power of God is at work right now in you. So Paul wants them to know and understand and see that immeasurably great power 
of God. The text uses a string of synonyms in verse 19 to describe that power of God. Each one of them has their own nuance. Just look at them. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Every one of those power-related words are different Greek words. He's basically throwing the kitchen sink of the Greek language at this idea. He's bringing every word he can think of for power, and he's bringing it to bear to try to help you know that every aspect you can consider for power is seen in God in a way you cannot fully comprehend. And so he speaks to the power that exists within God. It's not generated elsewhere. He uses a word that that clearly communicates. This is God's power. It's not a borrowed power. It's not a created somewhere else power that God buys from something like you do. It's his power. He has it. It's generated from within him. It's the aspect of his very own essence and nature. This power is also a power that affects things. It does a job. It works. It accomplishes things. It makes known the greatness of God through doing things. This power has great might and strength, which he says are immeasurably great. We, we use those words and we don't really know what we're saying when we say great and mighty and immeasurably great. And we just throw those kinds of things. He's, he's trying to help you understand this is beyond your comprehension. The ability, the, the strength of the power of God to get stuff done. It's off the charts and really out of this universe. You cannot hope to quantify it. It's immeasurably great. It's beyond all standards of measurement. In other words, I think he's saying we're going to spend all of eternity growing in our knowledge of this power. We're going to, we're going to see in, in new things on that eternal day, one experience after another, an, another evidence of the majestic, immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And it'll drop our jaw again. We'll be like, oh my, what a wonderful God. We'll see his greatness and his power. These three parallel statements in our text all hinge upon the work of God to raise Jesus from the dead. So the hope of our calling, our inheritance as being God's inheritance and His power at work in us, they all hinge on one event. The resurrection of Jesus. If He remains in the tomb, Paul never writes this because none of it's ever true. It's not possible. But He's not in the tomb. So all of these are true. And namely, tonight I want to drill down on the power of God, which is at work toward those who believe. And he does not mean those who believe that God is a God of power, then he'll show power to them. He means a group of people, to those who are the believers. So you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are rescued. You're called by his grace. Then this power is at work toward you, presently, already going on. This immeasurably great power. You think back to some other texts that speak of the power of God. There's one in Isaiah 40, which I'm sure you are very familiar with. It's, it speaks, it's the, the song that we uh, get our song, Behold Our God, out of. It's that, that idea of how, how can you comprehend the greatness of the majesty of the power of God. One commentator, Raymond McHenry, talks about the claims of the passage of, of, of Isaiah 40. In this way, he says, the oceans of the world contain more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. I don't know how we know that. Smarter people than me know how to know that. But more than, that's that's probably the qualifier, right? More than that. We know it's at least 340 
quintillion gallons of water, whatever that is. It's more than that, all right? And yet, in Isaiah 40, it says God holds them in the hollow of His hand. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. Again, I don't know how we know, and I don't know what that even means. I just know it's a lot. And Isaiah 40 says that it is but dust on the scales to God. The known universe stretches more than 30 billion light years. As we heard this morning from Carla, it's probably bigger than that now. But in Isaiah 40, it says God measures it by the width of his hand. Scientists claim that there are at least 100 billion galaxies. That's when this guy wrote. Carlin told you this morning it's over 2 trillion galaxies now. And each galaxy is made up of, we're estimating, we have no idea, but it's over 100 billion stars, each galaxy. 2 trillion times 100 billion. Do the math. It's a lot. And to such mind-boggling realities, Isaiah says to us that God calls each star by name. That is an evidence of the immeasurably great power of God. That's an impressive display of the largeness of God's power. When you get to the New Testament, though, the, the bright, shining star in the constellation of God's power is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. There's simply no greater expression of the power of God known to mankind not the size of the universe, not the number of stars, not the weight of the universe as dust on the scales of God. There is nothing that is a greater display to mankind of the power of God than the resurrection of His Son from His substitutionary death. This resurrection of Jesus was so monumental and filled with such power that it was accompanied by the exaltation of Jesus. Again, back to John 20, right? It's in Ephesians 1. I'm not making it up. I'm not creating a correspondence. It's here too, but Jesus told Mary, you you can't hold on to me. I'm leaving. Well, he has to leave, right? We know that. The necessity of the resurrection makes for the necessity of the ascension, and the necessity of the ascension makes for the necessity of his supremacy. And the necessity of his supremacy makes for the necessity of his headship. That's what Paul says here in Ephesians 1, that, that because he was raised, he, he had to be taken up, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And because he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, he was put in a place of supremacy over all things. And being put in a position over all things, he was given headship, authority over all things. This is the power of God displayed in raising his incarnate son from the lowest lows of death in the tomb to the highest highs, supremacy over all things at the right hand of God in heaven. He was raised by God's power at the right hand of His Father. He right now rules by God's power. He is supreme over all things by God's power. He is in authority over all things by God's power. And all of that is dependent upon the resurrection. All of it comes back to that moment when he was brought from death to life. Because he was raised, we can pray in different ways. Paul prays that 
they would be given greater insight and knowledge to understand this power better. It's a power that's at work already in those believers, and Paul prays that they would understand that. And you could spend, we could spend another hour talking about, well, in what ways does their knowledge of God's power already at work in them help them? Well, lots of ways. It helps them trust Him more. It helps them be obedient to Him. It helps them have faith in the hard things they can't understand about God. I mean, you could list hundreds of things. What I want to do tonight is ask, how does it shape how we pray? If a knowledge of the immeasurably great power of God is so important to Paul that he prays that they would have that, then I think it impacts how we pray, doesn't it? And so as we think about the resurrection and the power it displays, I ask you, how does it shape how we pray? How does the resurrection shape our praying? Well, I would say it should increase our commitment to prayer. It should fuel our confidence in prayer, and it should inform the content of our prayer. Three points, all C. You should be able to remember it, right? Commitment of our prayer. If truly this God is a God of such great power, then shouldn't that fuel our commitment to seek Him in prayer? If really He has displayed this immeasurably great power in the raising of His Son, then shouldn't we be compelled as His people who know that power through the resurrection of our own souls from spiritual death to spiritual life? Shouldn't we too then want more of that power displayed toward us? And shouldn't we then be committed to pray for that display of power? As humans, we're drawn to power in life. Right? We, we actually detest weakness. It, it really ticks us off. And if you doubt me, just think about your favorite football team or sports team, whatever it is, and just think about that last loss they underwent. I know you Chiefs fan, it's hard to remember, but back a while. For me, you know, I got a few examples this year. When they lose, what do you do? You decry and bemoan the weak defense or the weak coaching or the weak and pathetic refing. Right? You're looking for the weakness in the equation. And you hate it and you wish it was stronger. But when they win, you celebrate the strength. Man, what a running back. What an arm on that quarterback. What a defensive expression of power and strength, right? We celebrate weak, uh, strength and we hate weakness. We love power. We love power tools and powerful cars and drinks full of powerful caffeine. We love power. We're addicted to it. We're drawn to follow after powerful leaders who get things done, who don't see obstacles but opportunities, right? who can convince us that they can do anything. We're, we want that kind of person leading us. We despise and, and turn away from weakness. Somebody proves their incompetency and fails just one time at work or in our family or in our church. We're like, you got to find something else to do because you're just in the way. Like, we got stuff to do and your weakness is a problem. So go do something, else, right? And that's how we are. We detest weakness, but we love power. But isn't prayer an admittance of weakness? If you're going to pray, don't, don't you inherently have to be saying, I can't do this. I am not able. I am in need of help. 
when you pray, when you're most compelled and committed to pray, isn't it because you're so aware of something you can't fix? Some wall you can't scale? Some trap you can't get yourself out of? Some problem you can't solve? And finally, when the weakness settles on your shoulders so heavily, you finally fall on your knees and raise your eyes and arms to God and say, God, I need your help. Please help me. It's hard to admit our insufficiency and our helplessness. Prayer is a pride-killing moment as we cry out, God, I need you. But as we stand, understand more of the power of God, which is Paul, what Paul is praying for for us, the kind of prayer he displayed in crafting the world by simply speaking it into existence, and all things came to be. The kind of power he displays every day, not just in creating the world, but in containing and holding together all things in the world so that it doesn't fly off in a billion and zillion different directions. The kind of power he displays and evidenced when he brought a worldwide flood upon the whole earth, which didn't just kill everybody, but covered every mountain on the planet. The kind of power which rained down fire and sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment, killing all living things. The kind of power which brought about the ten plagues of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. The kind of power which dropped the walls of Jericho on the seventh day at the blow of the trumpet. The kind of power which directed the stone of David into the skull of Goliath and dropped that giant dead. The kind of power which raised the young boy from the dead through Elisha's ministry. The kind of power which killed 180,000 Assyrians at the hand of one angel in one night in response to the prayer of Hezekiah. The kind of power which sent a fish to swallow a, a wayward prophet and restore him to dry land so he could go on his mission. The kind of power which fell upon Mary and made her conceive as a virgin and carry the Christ child. The kind of power which healed the sick and caused the blind to see and made the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the dead to rise at the very command of Jesus. The power which most notably was displayed in raising Jesus' dead body from the very real and borrowed tomb, bringing him to life and exalting him into his eternal position of preeminence over all things. That kind of power is at work toward us who believe. And if you understand more of that kind of power, wouldn't you be more committed to pray more? Wouldn't it be easy if you understood more of the greatness of the majesty and power of God to, to admit, I can't do this. I don't have this. I will not solve this. I don't know what to do about this. But God, you are able. Wouldn't that thought put us on our knees? Seeking the God of heaven. Beloved, I don't know how severe your trouble is or how hard your trial is, but I know that it will not be, your trouble will not be the final blow that will knock our God off of his throne. Your difficulty will not overcome his power. Your problem is not greater than his. 
And therefore, we should pray about all things at all times, which is what the New Testament says over and over again. Pray without ceasing. If God is this God of immeasurably great power, then we should be committed to pray. We're prompted in this thought to pray about the smallest things and about the biggest things. Because we know that they're all minuscule in comparison to the greatness of the power of God. If we understand more of the power of God, we also should be filled with more confidence in our prayer. So we should be more committed to pray. We should also be filled with more confidence in our praying. Maybe this is the same thing as our commitment. I, I think it's different enough to draw it out, hence a second point. But the more sure we are of God's power to actually answer our prayer and do the very things we cannot do about the difficulties we face, the more we have confidence to pray to God about them. The more we're sure when we can't do anything, He can do something. And we say we believe this. I mean, you're here on a Sunday night. Certainly you believe this, right? You believe God is able. You're convinced of that. You pray that way. But if you know this better, more thoroughly and more fully, then you would pray with more confidence. Do we really actually have enough confidence in the Lord to believe that if He doesn't answer my prayer in the way or in the timing that I thought he would or should. That it isn't because he lacked power. And, and can I just say, I think for me, one of the hardest things to my confidence in prayer is unanswered prayer. Would you agree? When I don't see God answer prayers that I've prayed for a long time, I wonder two things. Does he care and is he able? And Paul is assured that he is able. He's also assured that he cares. That could be other texts. But this one, he's assured that he's able. So are you confident enough in the power of God that, that if he's not answering your prayer in the way and in the time that you think he should, that actually his power is at work towards you in a way that that actually will be better in the end and will display more of His glory? And maybe, could I even say, requires more of His power? Do you have that kind of confidence in the power of God to fuel your ongoing praying in light of unanswered prayer? And then, if we understand the immeasurable greatness of the power of God, it should shape the content of our prayer. So it should fuel our commitment to pray. It should bolster our confidence in prayer. And it should shape how we pray, what we pray about, the content of our praying. As we grow in confidence in the power of God, we'll increase in asking God about everything. We'll ask Him to help us find the thing we've lost. As I did this last week, ask Him to help me find something. I was in a hurry, needed it quickly, had no idea where it was. Threw up a few prayers, not irreverently, I hope. And I hope in humility and submission, Lord knows, I don't. I said, Lord, if you would be so kind, please help me find it. I'm in a hurry. And sure enough, within 30 seconds, there it was. I think that was a direct answer of God's kindness to my need. And I have confidence that he has the power to, to do that. Because His power is immeasurably great. He can help me find lost things. 
Not only can He help me find lost things, but He also can, can help me when I'm concerned for my kids and safety or sickness or when I need His help to unravel a problem in parenting or in leadership or in church. If we're confident of this power of God, we'll be compelled to pray for all things in every area of life. But I would say as we grow, we're going to start to realize that God's power is far greater than our request would indicate. As God opens our understanding and enlightens our mind and shapes our heart by the power He displayed in the resurrection, we'll start seeing that we're praying too small. That the content of our prayers actually aren't reflective of the greatness of the power of God. We'll broaden the horizon of our praying from our physical problems of our own lives and to those of the ones we love because we realize that God's power is big enough to handle it. It goes beyond our little sphere of influence. It goes beyond the daily or monthly or yearly or lifelong issues we deal with. His power is bigger than that. In fact, I think we'll be compelled to pray prayers of a spiritual nature. We'll boldly ask Him to do things that are much harder than keep my kids safe while they drive to work. Heal my friends so that they can keep their job. Help me do good on this test so I can pass this class. Pray those things. Please, pray about all things at all times. Don't stop. But as we get to know the greatness of the power of God, we'll expand the boundaries of the things we pray about because we'll realize that, oh man, God can do more than that. Immeasurably greater more than that. And we'll start seeing that actually this God who raised Jesus from the dead can save lost souls, bring back wayward children, Rescue the perishing and rebuild homes and restore relationships. That he can build his church through flawed and sinful and faulty people like us. And and in spite of us, can make the church a a light in a dark world. We'll start to realize that, that God can do great things through weak vessels in the spiritual realm that magnify His holy name, like spreading the gospel to lands who have not yet heard, to tribes who do not yet know. To take weak people, like the people of Newton Bible Church, and send them to the darkest places of the planet to say to those people, I've been sent by my Lord, to tell you good news. You see, we'll, as we understand the great power of God, have our boundaries expanded and it will shape what we pray about. So as we close, I ask you to examine your own praying. Not in any way to condemn you, but I hope to encourage you. This God of immeasurably great power is the God you go to when you say, Heavenly Father. And whatever you say after that statement ought reflect that He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. 
that he has power beyond your comprehension. And whatever you ask, he is able to do in accord with his wisdom, in keeping with his will, and all for his glory. May we pray that way. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you. Thank you for being so powerful. Thank you for giving us the avenue of prayer, which is mind-boggling to us. That we can, as it were, transport ourselves from here to your throne room and bring to you the things that are so concerning to us. Father, forgive us for lacking faith to believe that, that you care or that you can do something about it. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That we would grow in our knowledge of you, having the eyes of our heart enlightened. That we may know what is the immeasurably great power that you are at work toward us to do in accomplishing your will in our lives and your purposes for your ultimate glory. And then, Father, would you help us to pray in light of that increased knowledge. May all glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.